119 this morning. Well, in today's society, 3,000 new pages of material are printed every 60 seconds. That's a staggering statistic. It truly is the information age. In fact, if man's accumulated knowledge from the beginning of recorded history until the year 1845 were represented by one inch, then the knowledge accumulated from 1845 to 1945 would be three inches. And the knowledge accumulated from 1945 to 1975 would be the height of the, Nash, of the Washington Monument. And now knowledge doubles every few years. In fact, the scientist Isaac Asimov said, based on the rate at which knowledge is growing, it can be speculated that by the time today's child reaches 50 years of age, 97% of everything known in the world at that time will have been learned since his birth. Wow. A lot of information, lots of knowledge. But we're not too sure about truth. In fact, it was Paul who said to Timothy, there are those who are always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Information and knowledge is one thing and truth is certainly another. But there's a lot of information, a lot of books, most of the books published, by the way, that reach the top lists of sought-after books. According to U.S. News and World Report, the ones that really capture the attention of the American mind are those books that somehow unravel the meaning of life, some theory about what is the purpose and the meaning of life. One of the authors that was interviewed in that U.S. News and World Report article said, quote, the demand for spiritual food is an established fact. Where that demand will lead remains to be seen. Close quote. Well, of all the books published, and all the books published today, less than 1% of them will survive seven years. So big deal. We have lots of books being printed, lots of pages being added, lots of information. Less than 1% will survive seven years. Compare that to this. This book has lasted a long time. It's been cherished a long time by lots of people. Read, reread, and read again. I doubt that you'll take a novel and read it ten times in a row. But you'll take this book and you'll study it and you'll study it more and more. Well, we come to Psalm 119, which is about that. It's about the Word. It's the longest psalm in the book of Psalms, and it's the longest chapter in the Bible. 176 verses. We couldn't cover every verse today unless we read it and said amen, goodbye. <laughs> we're not going to do that, but we're going to look at seven areas, seven benefits that the Word of God has in the life of the believer. If you just look at the psalm for a moment, look at it generally, you notice that it has divisions. There are 22 sets of eight verses corresponding to the Hebrew alphabet. 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, 22 sections, 8 verses. It's an acrostic psalm, meaning that the first 8 verses all begin with the letter Aleph in the Hebrew alphabet. That's R-A. And the next 8 verses begin with the letter Bet, which is like R-B, and then Gimel, Dalet, He, Vav, Zion, Chet, Tet, all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. It's an acrostic. You might say then, just looking at the structure, 
that the Word of God covers the gamut of life from A to Z, from Aleph to Tav in the corresponding Hebrew language. In other words, the Bible is helpful in every way for absolutely every need that you'll face, from A to Z. That could be the intention of so many verses. And so, in almost every verse, the theme is the Bible, the Word of God, the truth, with a lot of different synonyms for it. For instance, 25 times in this chapter it is called the law. 22 times it's referred to as the testimonies of God. 21 times the precepts of God. Another 21 times they're called the statutes of God. 11 times the way or the ways of God. 22 times the commandments. 23 times the judgments. 39 times the word. All of these signifying the truth of God, the scriptures, the revelation. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes to that church, It says, you have received the word of God, which works effectively in you. It does something when you read it. When you read it to apply it, things happen, changes occur. It works effectively in you. The Gideon's society realizes that. That's why they place Bibles in hotel rooms. They believe that if a person is exposed to truth, something will happen. The United Bible Society believes that. That's why they're dedicated to the distribution of the scriptures. Wycliffe translators are also committed to translating the Bible into languages around the world. Why? Because when people expose themselves to God's truth, changes will occur. I dare say even the ACLU recognizes this. Listen to this. In Indiana, there are six inns in state parks. And in the inns, they have in the bureaus next to the beds in the rooms, the Gideon's Bible. The ACLU has decided that they would uh, threaten a lawsuit against the state of Indiana because they place Gideon Bibles uh, inside the uh, hotel rooms unless they have a warning pamphlet next to the Bible. No joke. has a picture of the Bible. Uh, It's pamphlets that are produced by the foundation of freedom from religion. The opposite of what this country was really based on, but freedom from religion. The pamphlet has a picture of the Bible and huge red letters, warning. And underneath it, it says, warning, literal belief in this book may endanger your life and health. It says and advises that the Bible is a violent, racist, sexist fable. The ACLU has threatened to sue the state of Indiana unless they put those pamphlets next to those Bibles. Well, let's see how dangerous this book is. Verse 1. Blessed, that means, oh, how happy are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. The Bible produces joy. The word blessed, as you remember from Psalm 1, means a compound happiness. Oh, oh, to be envied. Oh, the joys, plural, the happinesses of. Oh, to be congratulated is the one. Look over at verse 35. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. The similar thoughts to this verse are found in verse 47, 77, and 92. 
Look over at verse 103 for a moment. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Down at verse 111. Your testimonies I have taken as a heritage forever, for they are the rejoicing of my heart. See how dangerous this book is? It actually produces joy in the person who would read it. What is sad to me is that so many people have the idea that reading the Bible has got to be the biggest drag you could ever be faced with. You mean I have to read it? I'm like sentenced or something? It's like a duty instead of a joy. And there are different ideas of what happiness is. Everybody wants joy. But ask a person how you get it. You come up with different avenues. Oh, I'd be happy if I only had this kind of an income. I'd be happy if I only lived in that house. I'd be happy if I could marry that person. I'd be happy if I wouldn't have married that person. (laughs) The world promises joy through its advertisements. Buy this product, you'll be a happy camper. It never produces it though, right? Empty, vain promises. Philosopher Eric Hoffer said, The search for happiness is one of the chief sources of unhappiness. Yet that's written into our Constitution. You have the right to pursue happiness. Where do you find it? Another one wrote, There are two sources of unhappiness in life. One is not getting what you want. Second is getting it. Now, I study and read the Bible an awful lot because I preach and teach the Bible an awful lot. But I don't do it just for that reason. I love it. If I didn't teach or preach the Bible, I'd still read it as much. I love the Word. I love uncovering new truths about God as I study it. And I think of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus when Jesus came up to them and shared Scripture with them. And they turned to each other and said, Didn't our hearts burn within us as He spoke to us along the way? So blessed is the man, the joys. And what is that blessing? Well, it's the joy of knowing the love of God. It's the joy of knowing your future. It's the joy of finding out God's plan for you as you uncover the truth of the Word of God. It's not a duty. It's not a sentence. And yet there are people who live their Christian life sort of like that. They have to do it. They're just unhappy people. Joy doesn't seem to be a part of their makeup. There was a girl who was converted in a church meeting. It was a revival meeting. She came home. She lived on a farm, and she was so excited. She was dancing around the house and singing. She had met Jesus that day. Her grandfather, the legalistic sort, said, Shame on you. This is the Lord's Day, dancing and singing. She went out to the barn, very, very sad, climbed up on the fence, and saw her old, sad donkey. Droopy eyes. And she put her hand out to pet the donkey. And she said, don't worry, old mule. I guess you just have the same kind of religion grandpa has. <laughs> joy. Not abundant bummer to those who read the word. Joy, delight. Notice, however, it's not just the reader of the Bible that this joy is promised to. The keeper of the Bible. It says in verse 1, who walk in his testimonies or in his law. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. The idea is a lifestyle. That's what the word walk means. It's something that we do as a form of habit. So 
It produces joy. Secondly, it purifies us. Look at verse 9. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Look over at verse 126. Of course, we have to skip. It is time for you to act, O Lord, for they have regarded your law as void. Therefore, I love your commandments more than fine gold, yes, than fine gold. Therefore, all your precepts concerning all things I consider to be right. I hate every false way. As we internalize the word of God, we get the power to resist sin, temptation to sin. A lot of people are like the author, Oscar Wilde, who said, I found the only way to resist temptation is to give in to it. Well, that's the path of least resistance and most misery. We need the power to resist it. Verse 9 says, how can a young man cleanse his way? Now, temptation is powerful, and it does happen to every person, regardless of age. But it's interesting that the psalmist here selects the young as the target of temptation. Why? I think it's because the way you handle temptation as a young person will determine how you handle it as an older person. You're setting a habit. The way you handle your life now will determine how you handle your life later so often. And what temptations young people face today. I think the average high school kid has more sexual temptation on the way to and from school than his grandfather ever had on Saturday nights looking for it. It's everywhere. How do you cleanse your way? By taking heed according to God's Word. Somebody once said very, very appropriately, this book will keep you from sin, but sin will keep you from this book. It has the power to cleanse you from sin. Now, there is a verse of Scripture I want to bring up because it dovetails here. In uh, 1 John chapter 3... It says, whoever abides in him does not sin. That bothers a lot of us. In fact, that's probably why we don't underline that verse in our Bibles. Because we look at that verse and we look at our lives and we think something isn't right. Whoever abides in him doesn't sin. What does that mean? I mean, do Christians struggle with sin? Yep. Do Christians fall into sin? Yes. Do Christians deliberately sin? Sometimes. But when they do, it's brief. And they hate it. They don't love it. It's a Psalm 51 reaction. I hate this, God. Cleanse me. Deliver me from this. I don't want to do it. The meaning of that verse, better translated, would be this. Whoever continually abides in Him will not continually, habitually practice a lifestyle of sin. One person said it this way. A Christian is one to whom sin clings. A non-Christian is one who clings to sin. Big difference. One loves it, the other may fall into it from time to time, but not perpetually practice it and hate it every time he or she does it. A saint is simply a, 
a sinner revised and edited. And the Word of God gives us the power to resist it. So as we internalize the Word of God, as we read it, as we try to apply it to our lives, it becomes a defensive weapon in spiritual battle. As Paul said in that meaningful scripture on spiritual warfare, Ephesians 6, and take the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Allow me to explain that scripture. It's so vital. When it says the Word of God, it means a specific statement in the scripture, not the scripture generally. The word is not the logos, which is the Greek word generally for the Word of God. It's the Greek word rhema, which means a specific statement in the Word of God. In other words, the sword of the Spirit is a specific truth of the Bible to meet a specific temptation. A lot of times we as Christians speak about uh, the Bible that we own as our sword. We toss that term around, I got my sword. And if we have a pocket version, I got my dagger. Listen, you can own a Bible bookstore and still not have the sword of the Spirit. Sword of the Spirit isn't a Bible in general. It's a specific truth of the Bible to meet a specific temptation. Example, Jesus was tempted by Satan, Matthew chapter 4. Every assault of the devil, he brings out a specific declarative statement of truth, a specific scripture to meet that temptation head on. Now, in many of our Bibles, we have what's called a subject reference. Gideon Bibles have this at the beginning. It'll say, if you have bitterness in your life, look up these scriptures. If you have temptation in a sexual area, deal with these scriptures. If you have relational marriage difficulties, look up these scriptures. So that you can take a specific truth and meet a specific temptation head on. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. So, how dangerous is this book? Well, it produces joy, number one. Number two, it purifies us. Number three, it counsels us. Verse 17. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may see wondrous things from your law. That's got to be the greatest prayer every time we open this book. Open up my eyes, not open up her eyes, his eyes. He needs it. He needs this tape. Open up my eyes that I may behold wondrous things from your word. Look at verse 23. Princes also sit and speak against me, but your servant meditates on your statutes. Your testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. I need counsel a lot. And I'm glad I have God's truth. Besides that, it's free. I don't have to pay the Bible $80 an hour. I'm not knocking the profession of counseling. But I'll tell you what, I get my counsel from God's book. It tells me how I ought to live. It tells me how I ought to live in my marriage with my children, in my relationships, how to forgive, how to receive forgiveness, how to be merciful. It gives me counsel. And there's no greater source of counsel than this book, than God's truth. I think far too long... The church has bowed to the altars of B.F. Skinner and Carl Gustav Jung and on and on and on saying, these are the experts. Ask Freud. Some of these pros are understanding that God's been right all along. I was reading an article 
by Dr. William Glasser about an 11-year-old kid named Aaron who was a brat. Nobody could control Aaron. He kicked, he screamed, he would disrupt class, he would push kids around, he'd hide and withdraw. And uh, in dealing with him, Dr. Glasser said, nobody ever told him that what he was doing was wrong. Nobody ever imposed a value system and said, this is right, this is wrong. So he decided to do that. He said, Aaron, if you do some of these kinds of things, you'll be punished. Novel approach. This is what he said. He said, the results were remarkable, probably because he had been anxious for so long to be treated in a realistic way. He now became courteous, well-behaved. His grades went to straight A's. For the first time, Aaron began to play constructively and stop blaming his troubles on his mother or other people. Glasser calls this new novel approach reality therapy. Wow. Very, very ingenious, right? Ingenious. Wow, inventive. Reality therapy. Listen. He says... One of an individual's greatest needs is to be made to realize that he's personally responsible for what he does and that right behavior accomplishes more than wrong behavior. Folks, this book is filled with reality therapy. (laughs) Right, wrong, good, evil, bad choice, right choice. It's filled with that. The Word of God is your counselor. It tells you that's wrong. It tells you that's right. And so when we read it, we understand what God's will is. That term, by the way, God's will, let's, let's think about that. I feel sorry for God so often because people do dumb, bizarre things and they say, it was God's will. Really? I read in the newspaper about a guy who climbed a, climbed a flagpole naked. And when the police arrested him afterwards and asked him why he did it, he said, it was God's will. So goofy, blaming it all on God. Or some of us think the will of God is elusive. You ask a person, what are you doing these days? Searching for God's will. God is not a celestial Easter bunny, stashing his will in hard-to-find places, (laughs) sitting in heaven saying, you're getting warmer. In fact, we sang this verse this morning, verse 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Simply put, the word of God is a guide. How many verses are there in the Bible that say this? This is the will of God, colon, and then it's spelled out. Plus, the more you read it, you understand what God loves, what God hates, what's important to him, what's not important to him. Thus, you have a construct of the will of God. It's not that difficult. And there are times in my life when I'm unsure about a decision. And so I will try to find a scenario in the Old Testament or in the New Testament about a person who's struggling with a a similar issue and how God led that person. Or I'll find a direct, didactive section of the Bible that, that works me through that, a text that tells me what to do or what not to do, and try to apply those truths, those principles to my life. I uh, read a cute little article about uh, a tornado victim. A few people survived a a, a tornado in the Midwest, and he was retelling the story. He said, when the house began to shake, began to move, and the wind started taking it and picking it up, 
he started instinctively saying, N-E-M, N-E-M, no joke, N-E-M, N-E-M. He had so internalized the story of the Wizard of Oz that when a similar thing happened to him, he spewed out the text. And as I read that, I thought, that's how we ought to take the Bible. It should become so instinctive that when the storm comes, when a problem happens, when a situation happens, our minds go to a scenario and we're influenced by what we read. That's why we need illumination. That's why verse 18 is so important. Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things from your law. So it produces joy. It purifies us. It counsels us. Number four, it liberates us. Verse 32. I will run the course of your commandments, for you will enlarge my heart. The idea of enlarging is giving space to freeing the mind, freeing the heart. Verse 44. So shall I keep your law continually forever and ever, and I will walk at liberty, verse 45, for I seek your precepts. Remember what Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him? He said, if you hold to my teaching, then you're my disciples indeed, for you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth has the capacity to liberate a person. You'll know it, and when you know it, it'll set you free. You know, a lot of colleges have that phrase at the opening to their university. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Often putting that on the university, disregarding what particular type of truth it's referring to. It's the truth about Christ, not about just knowledge in general. It's Christ's truth. I've told you before about Harvard University when it first began and it began to perpetuate the gospel. It had a crest that had three books on it. Two books on top, one book on the bottom facing down, showing that human knowledge is very limited. And the crest said, Veritas Christo et Ecclesia. Truth for Christ and the church. Well, they've revised it since. The new crest has the book facing upward, showing the unlimited capacity of the human mind with the one word, Veritas. Truth in general. Not truth for Christ, not truth for the church. It's truth. But the truth that is liberating from whence they get their verse to put on their universities is the truth about Christ. If you hold to my teachings, then you are my disciples indeed, and you will know the truth, and that truth will set you free. And how liberated we are as we read a truth in the Scripture. We may be uh, bound by a tradition or bound by a, a presupposition, or we might be bound by a superstition. We read a truth of the Scripture, we're liberated. We walk in liberty, an enlarged place. And the Soviet Union was still the Soviet Union, and Christians were massively bring, being persecuted, not that they're not now, but in a different way. And a Soviet official was asked, how come you guys are so afraid of the Bible? And, and why do you persecute and jail people who distribute the Bible? The answer was this. We find that the reading of this book changes people in a way that is dangerous to our state. It sets a person free. It liberates them. It lifts them above the state in a sense. They love God. They will serve the God who made heaven and earth, not just be in servile fear to the state. It liberates. Fifthly, it will comfort us in suffering. Verse 52. I remembered your judgments of old, O Lord, and have comforted myself 
Indignation has taken hold of me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. I remembered your name in the night, O Lord, and I keep your law. This has become mine because I kept your precepts. Also look at verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The proud have forged a lie against me, but I will keep your precepts with my whole heart. Their heart is fat as grease, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. Suffering is the lot of every person, but the Bible helps you to make sense out of it. And in these verses, comparing them, the psalmist says, I'm able to tell the difference between God's judgment upon the unrighteous and God's discipline in affliction of the righteous. I have insight and understanding in my suffering. Remember that uh, Jesus talked about the Heavenly Father as a vine dresser who prunes the branches Every branch in me, said Jesus, who bears fruit, the Father will prune. One of the the best methods that God uses to prune us is suffering, affliction. And while we're going through it and we open the Bible, we get some depth and insight, understanding into why we're being pruned. Now, it's not always um, painless. In fact, I think the idea of pruning would be pain, right? The vine dresser has to use a knife to cut the branch. And sometimes we wonder, God, why are you spending all of this time on my branches? You seem to leave a lot of these other plants alone out there. Why do I get so much of this honored pruning in my life? And so the suffering gets our attention and the word of God helps to explain why. And that's why Jesus said in the same verse, every branch in me that bears fruit, the father prunes it that it might bear more fruit. Now you are clean through the word that I have spoken to you. The affliction and the application of the word of God prunes the believer and it comforts us in suffering. Have you noticed how sensitive we are to the word of God when we suffer? Have you ever opened up a familiar passage when you're going through something difficult and certain truths leap off the page and slap you upside the head sometimes? It's like, wow, that's a potent verse right now. Certainly because of what you're going through. I heard of a small factory that had to shut down because of a strategic piece of equipment failed. They tried to tinker with it. They couldn't fix this piece of machinery. They finally called in the experts who installed it. The experts came out. The guy looked it over, took out a little ball-peen hammer and tapped this little piece of equipment on the side. Boom, it worked. Sent the owner of the factory a bill for $1,000. The guy got all angry, hit the ceiling, and demand an itemized list. So he said, certainly, I'll give you an itemized list. One dollar for hitting it with the hammer, $999 for knowing precisely where to hit it with the hammer. (laughs) Sometimes we open the Bible and a truth, bing, exactly what we needed at that point. Perfect place. Thank you, Holy Spirit. The Word of God does that. God is like a skillful surgeon with His Word, a skilled craftsman. 
And so it produces joy, it purifies the believer, it counsels us, it liberates us, it comforts us. And six, it instructs us. It instructs us. Look at verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. You, through your commandment, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients. Look over at verse 104, down a few verses. Through your precepts, I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. And then go down to verse 130. The entrance of your words gives light, it gives understanding to the simple. So God's word will instruct us. This is the instruction manual to your life. You know, I love gadgets. I really dig new gadgets to see how they work. But I hate to read the instruction manuals. In fact, I never do (laughs) until it breaks. Have you ever had that experience? Everything's great. Then the thing fails. Now, since I never read the manual, I don't know why it fails. Now I'm faced with this horrible task of having to find the manual and read through it to find out how it's supposed to work and what I did wrong. A lot of people approach life that way. They just go for it, and when life breaks down, having never read the manual, they have to go back and find out God's intention for life. And so the Bible instructs us. It's the manufacturer's manual of operations. Colleges are great. Colleges prepare you for certain tasks in life. The Bible prepares you for life itself. Big difference. You might be skilled in performing certain functions, but very uh, not adept, ill-adept at life itself. The great scholar William Phelps of Yale University said, I believe a knowledge of the Bible without a college course is more valuable than a college course without the Bible. Very significant for that scholar to mention that. Alfred Lord, Lloyd, Lord Tennyson, the poet laureate of England, said, The Bible is an education all in itself. The 28th president, Woodrow Wilson of the United States, said a person who deprives himself of an understanding of the Bible has deprived himself of the best there is in the world. So no more of this nonsense. Yeah, everybody ought to own a Bible. It's great to press flowers in and write marriages in and births in. No, we ought to live it because it instructs us. It tells us about life and how to maximize life, how to find fulfillment in life, the purpose of life. Because of that, we grow spiritually. Look at verse 103. He said, it's sweeter than honey. Have you noticed how in the Bible, oftentimes the Bible is referred to as food, honey, milk, bread, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, the meat of the word it's talked about? Why? Because as we take it in, we grow because of these things. It's so sad to see a person in physical life Stop growing. It's sad to see a person in spiritual life stop growing. There are many spiritually retarded people. They've stopped spiritual growth. They come to church each week and they sit, they bring their thimbles and fill them up to the full, spill them out on the steps as they go. 
And that's their growth. They're not taking in the Word of God. Listen, get off junk food. Get into the real food. The daily, weekly, constant application of God's Word to our lives. You want to grow up? How do you grow? You eat right and you exercise regularly. Spiritual life, it's the same way. Eat spiritual food and exercise God's truth regularly. Get involved. Do something with what you know is right. And as you exercise, you'll become strong. You'll become fit, mature. You'll spiritually grow. Seventh and finally, the Word of God gives us peace. One verse I draw your attention to, verse 165, and we'll close with this. Great peace have those who love your law. Peace. Boy, peace is on everybody's minds these days, isn't it? The peace talks in the Middle East, the peace initiatives in Bosnia, the United States, uh, the United Nations is monitoring all of the nations where there is no peace, trying to figure out how could we ever get peace there. Great peace have those who know your law. What kind of peace? It's not the absence of conflict as much as the presence of confidence. I'm going through something terrific and horrible perhaps, but I know that God is in charge. The Bible tells me so, and I place my trust in him. I spoke to a couple last night whose child is tragically going through leukemia, and we've been praying for this child, and the child is on the upswing right now. But what peace they had in their lives. What confidence in God. Like the submarine that was out on maneuvers, it had submerged overnight, and when it came up the next day, the people on the dock said, how'd you guys weather the storm last night? The submarine captain said, storm? What storm? It got so far deepened into the ocean to a place called the cushion of the sea, known by sailors as the cushion of the sea, it didn't feel the storm on the top. We go through storms. But when you get past the surface and you go deeper, there can be a peace that only the child of God knows because he or she relies on God's truth. So it's true, isn't it? The Word of God is alive, powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. The writer of Hebrews tells us. So why is it that Barna is right when he says 25% of born-again Christians read this book every day? If the Bible does that much good, if God's truth can change a life that much that the ACLU wants a warning label on the Bibles, why don't we who are Christians read it voraciously feed on it? A man looked out in his garden one day and he noticed a beautiful butterfly landing on top of the flowers and going to another flower. A beautiful butterfly, but it just sort of skimmed over the nectar and didn't really take much. Next came a botanist into the garden. Botanist had his big notebook under his arm and magnifying glass, and he would study these things and write notes and leave. Next he said he saw a bee who came hovered over the flower and went deep inside and extracted every bit of nourishment and nectar that it could out of the flowers. Then it would fly away, deposit it, each time coming in empty, leaving full. What kind of a Bible reader are you? A butterfly? A little over here, on now I'll go over here, there's something cool happening over here, flitter, flutter, or the botanist, notebook, copious notes. That's great, but... 
Maybe you're like the bee. Instead of skimming truth, you probe deeply. You get as much as you can out of every session you have in the Word of God. If so, you will be as this psalm describes. You'll be filled with happiness. You'll have the power to resist sin. You'll be counseled. You'll be liberated. You'll be instructed. On and on. Father, help us to probe your truth. Truth is not subjective. It's very, very objective and very testable. Lord, it's remarkable that the books that are out today will be virtually unheard of in seven years. And yet your word will go on and on and on. As Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away. My words never will. Thank you for something that is everlasting, that changes our whole life. I pray that we'd let it. I pray that we'd give ourselves to it. And I pray, Father, that we would be conformed to it. Conformed to it. We'd walk in it. We'd obey your precepts, not just underline them. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Amen.